With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is the chair of the Politics Department, Professor of Politics and History at Catawba College, Michael Bitzer, truly an expert on North Carolina politics. So in our weekly segment on key battleground states, Michael will tell us what's going on in the Tar Heel State. Remember, we love taking your questions. So write in to politicsworldroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper, Blinkist, and ExpressVPN in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, what's the name of that Louisiana river that seems to have no bottom? <laughs> <laughs> the Atchafalaya. The Atchafalaya. Well, um, on the how low can you get a Atchafalaya scale, Florida's Ron DeSantis is rivaling Donald Trump. He sent a plane to Texas, not Florida, but he sent it to Texas and then deceived migrants with false promises and they're just getting a plane to go to Massachusetts. Now, of course, what they didn't tell him was that plane was going to land in Martha's Vineyard so DeSantis could get his thrills dumping those poor people in the playground of the rich and famous. It was a despicable act on par with Trump's deliberate policy of separating families and separating children from their parents, uh, migrants. And it was almost certainly dishonest, as revealed by the fabulous Judd Legum and popular information. Local DAs are opening a criminal inquiry. Of course, the reason he had to send the plane, James, yeah, there's another plane paid for by Florida taxpayers to Texas was because there's no southern border with Florida. You don't have immigrants coming, coming to Florida from across the border. So most of these migrants were from Venezuela under very difficult conditions. Conditions They traveled thousands of miles to seek asylum from a brutal communist dictatorship. That sort of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sixty years ago, Cuban refugees we welcomed, particularly in Florida. James, is this going to help or hurt DeSantis politically? You know, I, I, I think at the end of the day, it's going to hurt him. You know, maybe I have a, a, a politics review. First of all, right, Judd Legum, read John Chait, as always. He has, he has serious legal vulnerability here. He has some criminal vulnerability, and he has considerable civil vulnerability, and he's being sued. It, there's a two words used to describe people that were on that airplane, and the two words are human beings. Now, I don't know, I haven't seen, if it has, it's been pretty muted, where's our communities of faith? If there's anything that religion teaches you is to love your neighbor as yourself, what kind of a person would take these human beings who've had a, a tough draw in life? I've been to Venezuela, man, it, it's no fun. It's no fun living under that regime. It's no fun living in fear. 
And as soon as a human being comes here, they use him as a political point. Where's the U.S. Conference of Bishops? Where's the Council of Evangelicals? Where's the U.S. Rabbinical Rabbi Council? Where are all these people? Where are they? There's nothing, there's nothing more abhorrent to the basic tenets of Christianity or Judaism or suspect Islam than using unfortunate human beings as a prop. That's exactly what's going on. And, and I, I, I have some confidence that, you know, people will see through this. This is a disgusting, inhuman, maybe even criminal effort on DeSantis' part. James, I happened to do some checking yesterday on the religious leaders. Uh, Many Catholic bishops have been quite good on this. Those in Texas, those in Florida, those in Massachusetts. I'm not sure if the Conference of Bishops has taken a stand yet. But I'll tell you, I haven't heard much from a lot of evangelicals. Uh, And uh, uh, the, uh, as I say, the, the, the bishop in Miami has an ongoing feud about immigration with DeSantis. Uh, but you're absolutely right. If there's anything that people of faith should speak out on, it's this. Um, and the border is a very difficult problem. There is no question about that. This has nothing to do with the border. This has uh, with a guy who is trying some kind of a, uh, a, a gimmick, a political ploy, a con game. Uh, uh, he didn't care about the people, some of them including little kids. I think that the Democrats have to address the border issue. It doesn't help when Kamala Harris says it's secure. By some definitions, it may be, but there are two million people were apprehended. Uh, and uh, it's not an easy issue. And Trump screwed it up so badly, Biden's got a lot of challenges. Now, James, one of your uh, favorites, uh, New York Times columnist Brett Stevens, says today Biden should take charge and simple, just finish building that wall along the border. I'm sure you think that's a great idea. <laughs> I mean, there was so much research on the wall, how little of it got built. Uh, you know, it, 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 Brett Stevens is a guy who's like tormented because, you know, he's, he's very conservative and he's uncomfortable with Trump, but just can't bring himself uh, around to it. And it's always, well, Trump's bad, but you know, the Democrats are worse. That, that's his whole motif. I'm not going to say Trump's any good, but look the other way. <laughs> and, I, 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 you know, and I, I feel sorry for these guys. Ross Duhart's a little bit the same way. They just can't say, you know what, we were Republicans and we just, the, our party has just thrown this thing over the fence. I, I, I don't know why they can't come to grips with it. but it Well, and the way Charlie Sykes and Bill Crystal, Right. Uh, and um, For uh, sure. Tim, or Tim Miller. Tim Miller. Uh, uh, yeah. You know. Uh, a lot of people. Lass, have, right. Mona a Chair. lot of people have said, yeah, uh, Sarah Longwell. Right. I mean, I could go on, on and on. Stuart Stevens. I mean, that's not hard. There are examples and a lot of examples out there, but they don't, they just can't, they're just addicted to the idea that if you give rich people money, it'll trickle down to poor people. And that's all they really care about. Right. Let me let me turn, um, unless there's something more you want to say about DeSantis. Uh, I, I don't, I, I think that DeSantis, if, 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 you know, as we watch this over a period of time, he is way out there. He is way public. He is way out there. And he's going to be out there for a long time. Human experience tells you that the more that a piece of produce sits out there, 
the more likely it is to rot. And if if DeSantis thinks that he's operating with the support of, of Cotton and uh, Howley and, and Cruz and Mike Lee and that whole clown show, he's got another thought coming. They're going to cut his ass. They're going to cut they're going to cut him hard here before long. You watch. He can't yeah, stay he- that far that far out there for that long. And plus, you know, Trump is obviously not happy with all of this. He doesn't have Trump doesn't have very much to be happy about these days. Right. Sanders makes him even even uh, even less happy or even right. madder. Uh, let me turn to the election uh, for a minute. I, you know, I don't think much has changed in the last uh, week or two. Um and I think abortion clearly has made this a competitive contest in many states around the country. But let me just put out a warning. Democrats would be foolish to only count on this issue and, and sort of duck the question of inflation, which people care about a lot. And I'll tell you the way they ought to handle There's a Times piece this week. Michigan's Alyssa Slotkin talks about abortion. It's on the ballot out in, out in the state. But she says you've got to talk about inflation, too. And you've got to say Democ- it's a big problem. Democrats are trying to do something about it. We're working on it. we got solutions. Republicans don't. All they do is say it's bad. We're allowing Medicare to negotiate uh, to lower prescription drugs, put a cap on some drug prices. Uh, we just passed a big uh, inflation reduction bill, maybe a gasoline tax holiday, investigate price gouging. Can, you know, candidates can't afford to forfeit on this issue. And it's true. Republicans talk a lot. They have a lot of rhetoric. They don't have any solutions other than it's bad, bad, it's all Biden. So this is a regressful little political consulting one-on-one here. So if you ask people, what do you think the biggest problem facing the country is, inflation is going to be the answer, inflation, the economy, all right? So let's just say that 37%, just for the sake of argument, say inflation economy, number one, 20% mentioned abortion. We said, well, gee, it's almost double the number of people that worried about inflation. But the next thing is key. What? What do Republicans want to do about inflation? As far as I can discern, nothing but talk about it. Now, people don't know, but people do know what they want to do about abortion. They want to make it illegal. All right? And and that's where these, the in, inflation trumps abortion stories come from. And, of course, it trumps their stories. And if, if they thought, if the voters thought that the Republicans had an actual solution to inflation, of which, of course, they do not— and they don't, and the Democrats have a much better plan of how you deal with the effects of disinflation, then you, you can see where it ends up. But this this whole, and, and I, I think that you're wise to, to, you know, talk about, the Democrats need to talk about how they're helping people. And obviously, women are people, <laughs> newsflash, and, and, and they can incorporate that into it. But But be careful of the thousand stories we read that inflation is a bigger is- issue than abortion, so that bodes well for Republicans. It, it may, but so far it, it's not. And the reason is there's a distinction. There's something you can do about it, about a- abortion. There's a clear distinction between what they are and what the Democrats are. On, on inflation, it's, it's not clear at all. Yeah. And it's oh. just clear that the Democrats, and as, as Congresswoman Slotman pointed out, they're trying to deal with it. James, you just uh, came back from across the pond for two weeks. You were in Europe. Inflation is worse over there in most oh. places than, than it is here. I'll I tell you what's really bad it, it is the labor shortage. I, I mean, we went 
to the Dublin airport to fly to London, there were two British Airways ticket agents at the entire airport. And when I tell you the line was two hours long, I'm not kidding you. The same thing, yeah, we, we took the train, the, the Eurostar from St. Pancras in London to, to Paris. There wasn't any, they couldn't find a baggage assistant. You couldn't find anything. You couldn't go to any, every food line or Starbucks or whatever they have was packed. Don't kid yourself. The, the things that are happening in inflation, whew, man, uh, in, inflation is ridiculously high there too, and the labor shortage is ridiculously tight. You go to Europe, you got to get to that airport three hours before the flight. And you, you still going to need all three of it. I promise you. Now, of course, with all that, James, it wasn't hardship duty for you and Mary. No, no. That, not the Mandarin Oriental in Paris or the Dukes in London or the Shelburne in, in Dublin. No, that's not hard duty. <laughs> I, I love the Shelburne. That's a, that stayed in the same room John Kennedy stayed in. It's right down in St. Oh, my Steve God. John Green. Kennedy and James Carville. Yeah, there that's you go. Room 415, a, I think it was. That's a pair. And, and you saw yeah. all your Irish relatives. That's right. right. Well, he's in the south. He's in County Wexford. My people are further north. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey, James, if you want to find out about North Carolina politics, you have got to read Old North State Politics, which is uh, directed uh, by Michael Bitzer of Catawba College, uh, along with some of his colleagues from other great institutions like Meredith. Uh, and Michael, uh, I'm a huge fan of Old North State Politics, and I've loved North Carolina ever since I went to college down there, as my wife did also. Since my son works for Sherry Beasley, a Democratic candidate for the Senate, James is going to focus on that race. But first, I, I, I want to ask you about the state. There's a sense in Washington, uh, which I think is wrong, but there's a perception that North Carolina is really more of a Republican state. You're the expert on the Tar Heel state. Tell us if that's right. Well, I think North Carolina, historically and in modern context, you have to look at it in two different ways. I think at the federal level for president, oftentimes for U.S. Senate, it tends to be a purple state, with a, but with a slight red tint to it. I think at the state level, when you're talking about gubernatorial uh, state uh, council races, that tends to be purple, but with a slight blue tint, very much purple in terms of a lot of statewide offices. So I think North Carolina has, <clears throat> probably for national Democrats, been one of those states that they just can't seem to get over the final hurdle. Yes, Barack Obama won in 2008, but it was by a whisker. We've had Democratic U.S. Senators, Kay Hagan most notably, but generally for U.S. Senate races in particular, it has been a kind of lean to the right Republicans, primarily due to turnout dynamics, which we can talk about later. Yeah, and we will. And I, I, you're undoubtedly right, because you're right about everything in North Carolina politics. <laughs> I really mean that. But uh, the Senate, you cite some interesting uh, points. But let's not forget, John Edwards didn't run for re-election in 2004, probably would have sure. won. Cal Cunningham, the Democratic candidate, most people think would have won last time if he kept his pants on. So, uh, I mean, some of this, some of this is situational, isn't it? 
It, it most definitely is. And what we tend to see in terms of midterm elections is indeed an advantage to registered Republicans who tend to show up at higher rates. But if a candidate on the Democratic side is a kind of classic North Carolina Democrat, and by that I mean more moderate, more middle of the road than necessarily progressive, you will see a very tight election. And I think in North Carolina, based on both presidential and midterm years, this state is very much a within the margin of error kind of state. Three to four points could be considered a blowout. Typically, one to two points margin of victory is the norm now. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's always a comparison to Georgia, which is interesting. North mm -hmm. Carolina has fewer black voters than Georgia, but more educated white voters who, who, who tend Democrat. Uh, but a Harvard scholar did a really interesting study uh, that said with Stacey Abrams, Georgia was much better organized than all the protests that were held in North Carolina. Have, have Tar Heel Democrats narrowed that organizational deficiency any? I think they have over the past couple of election cycles, but they just can't seem to meet the dynamics of what registered Republicans and the Republican Party does. I think in this state, if you look at registered voter turnout, in 2020, we had 75 percent of all the registered voters cast ballots, and that was a record. Registered Democrats had the exact same turnout rate, 75 percent. So they met the average. The problem is registered Republicans were at 81 percent. And the largest block of voters right now in the state are registered unaffiliated, and they were down into the 60s. So in my contention, yes, I've, I've looked at Georgia, and I think the dynamic is very much evident in that state when it comes to grassroots mobilization and organization and getting voters out to the polls. But I just haven't seen a kind of systemic long-term investment in North Carolina among registered Democrats or the Democratic Party to really try and elevate and meet the registered Republican dynamics. James Carville. So, Profit, you know, obviously cut my teeth on Southern politics. You've been in North Carolina a long time. It, generally, you would look you would look at a Southern state and you'd say, well, it's 78 percent white, 22 percent black. It, that's true in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, but North Carolina has a huge other. That, that, yes, what percent of the people you think they're going to vote do not identify as either white or black in, in standard? Well, that number has been increasing over the past couple of years. Voters are typically not checking the boxes when it comes to race and ethnicity. And so this unknown portion of the electorate, it has been 5%, 6%. It's getting up to 8 amongst uh, the voters this year. It's into the teens. So it's really posing a, a, an interesting challenge for those of us who study this state in terms of who are these people and where are they coming from in terms of their racial and ethnic background? I think the dynamic right now is what we're seeing is White, non-Hispanic, Latino voters are about 64 percent. Two years ago, they were 66 percent. Uh, registered uh, or African-American, non-Hispanic voters is stuck at about 20 percent. 
Hispanic Latinos are still below 5%. So we've got this bulk of voters that are refusing to identify based on race and ethnicity. And that's going to pose a real issue and challenge for those of us who study it, as well as the political parties themselves. So, uh, Prof, right after the November 2020 election, uh, Morgan Jackson, who I think is a preeminent Democratic strategist mm-hmm. in North Carolina, a friend of mine said, the Democrats are going to make a mistake. They're going to look at 2022 Senate and think that, you know, we're not that well positioned. He said, we're actually a lot better positioned than people think. And I think he was also alluding that these demographic changes were happening in, in North Carolina rapidly. And is it, do you agree with Morgan's kind of assessment of, of, of where it is that the, the Democratic chances are better than people in Washington think? I think so. And one of the key demographics that a lot of people are not paying attention to, but I and others are watching very closely, is generational dynamics. When you break down the electorate based on generations, what we tend to see, of course, are older voters with a much higher turnout rate. But what we're seeing among voters under the age of 40, so basically millennials and now Gen Zers, they are starting to catch up to their respective weight in terms of the voter registration pool, and their turnout rates are increasing. And I think of North Carolina as a microcosm of the nation as a whole. Voters under the age of 40 tend to lean very much towards the Democratic Party If that kind of dynamic is playing out here in North Carolina and this tectonic shift potentially in 2022 happens with millennials and Gen Zers reaching their weight in terms of election turnout rates, we could see the shift go from purple with a red tint to purple with a very distinct blue tint to it. Yeah, before we turn it over to Al, one of my people – Oftentimes, asking what do you think the most effective thing Democrats can do or money, and I think the most effective thing Democrats can do is try to jack up turnout among under forties. I mean, if we got if 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 we move that share to vote two points, we'd change sea level because you know if if yep. the contribution is seventeen and you move it to nineteen, then two percent has to come off of somewhere else. Like a lot of it will come off over sixty five, but but. Would you say just buttresses that that argument that they should really put money into voter, you know, under 40 turnout? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And and in 2020, if you look at just boomers, they had an 86 percent turnout rate in 2020 among millennials and Gen Zers. It was only 61 percent. Now, that was up from 2018. If that trend continues to move up. And some of the analysis that I've done in precincts where you see increases in population and percentage of the electorate among those two younger generations, the clear line is towards Democrats over Republicans. Albert? You know, one of the critical races in your state this year that's under the radar, at least by the national press, is two Democratic seats on the state Supreme Court. which with its four to three Democratic majority has been a counter to the right-wing legislature. Do you have any sense, Michael, the outlook for those two races, one of which involves Sam Irvin IV, the grandson of the fabled uh, Watergate senator? 
Indeed. And I think that is one of the core races that those of us watching North Carolina will be especially attuned to. I think the dynamic for most voters is that we will typically tend to see party loyalty drop that. Yes, we'll have advertising. Yes, the candidates have already started their forums speaking to the issues as best as they can. But I think state Supreme Court seats critical in this state are those seats and contests that are low salience. The voters don't know a whole lot about it. So they're going to follow their party loyalty, R or D, in those contests. Well, the importance of that, I think, is um, is illustrated by the congressional map, which mm-hmm. uh, this court made that really, really, that right-wing legislator, incre- with, with incredible gerrymandered map, uh, they, they, they revised it. North Carolina gains a seat. I think the Republicans have an 8-5 majority now. What's, what's the outlook there? So right now, this is a major controversy in North Carolina politics. We can't go through a redistricting cycle without it being contested in court. Right now, the the dynamics, the way that I look at it, it's seven Republican seats, six Democratic seats. Those are pretty safe seats to both parties. And one, the 13th congressional district, is indeed the toss-up district. That's just south of Raleigh. And I think what's going to happen is Republicans have made uh, it very well known that they are going after at least one, if not both, of those state Supreme Court seats. If they capture one of those seats, the next redraw, which will be next spring, likely following Supreme Court's decision on Moore v. Harper, which is the state independent legislature uh, doctrine case, they will redraw, the legislature will redraw it. It's likely to be in Republican hands. And if they get carte blanche, if they are able to have a Supreme state Supreme Court on their side, that 7-7 seven, seven potential tie in terms of a congressional district will likely go 10-4 or maybe even 11-3. Republicans wow. are baying for those two state Supreme Court seats. They want control of it. The governor has no authority over redistricting legislation. He can't veto it. So if the state Supreme Court goes Republican, they will be able to partisan gerrymander and overturn that previous decision by a Democratic state Supreme Court. And interesting, the popular Governor Roy Cooper, as you say, has no involvement uh, in that at all in North Carolina. James, anything more on the Senate race? Yeah, yeah so election night, I always like to have a, a little secret county up my sleeve to look at. If you could see one county early, which would be the one that, that you think would tell you the most about where, where North Carolina is going? You know, a lot of the national narrative kind of plays out in North Carolina, particularly the urban-rural divide. Right. But the, the, the suburban counties are, particularly those counties that surround the urban counties, are the most Republican counties in the state. And I think one county just outside of Charlotte and Mecklenburg County is Cabarrus County. It is a very Republican county, but in 2020, 
they went slightly less Republican. So it appears that those surrounding suburban counties may be dropping some of that intense Republican dynamic. That is the base of the Republican Party in this state, those surrounding suburban counties. And if Beasley is able to carve into the margins within those uh, counties, hold up in those urban areas and do well in rural communities, I think she's got a shot at it. But again, all of the fundamentals kind of point to a Republican advantage, even as slight as it is in North Carolina. And that county is called what again? I'm about it's Cabarrus County, just Spelling northeast. C A B A R R U S. Okay, so on election night, I'm going to be looking at Cabarrus County and have an early prediction based on my. <laughs> we'll see how it plays out. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the. It was pointed out by someone that North Carolina, that that Bud is the most conservative, the most right-wing Republican to run in North Carolina since Jesse Helms. And basically, you know, Burr and, and, and the, the people that, that, yeah. that they've had are very conservative, but they're not an aggressive kind of thing. Is, that, is North Carolina like that more temperate republicanism? Will, that, will, will Bird chase some people off because he's pretty extreme? But, yeah. But, I mean, I, but. Yeah. I, I think the North Carolina Republican Party is now very much the Trump Republican Party. Uh, Ted Budd got the endorsement of the former president, Mark Walker, another very conservative Republican, was seeking that. If you take those two gentlemen's primary vote total, two-thirds of North Carolina Republican voters voted for basically the Trump candidate. The former governor, Pat McCrory, who also vied for the U.S. Senate race, he only got 25 percent of the vote. He described himself as an Eisenhower and Reagan Republican. That is a distinct minority within today's Republican Party in North Carolina. So I think the dynamics and you just have to look to the second impeachment. Richard Burr voted guilty. He was censured by the North Carolina State Republican Party for that vote in terms of the dynamics. So to me, the base voters, the party as an organization, and now the party in government, the elected officials, they are pretty much the Trump Republican Party of North Carolina. So before I let you go, Professor, I have a particular passion for public higher education, obviously. And sure. North Carolina ha had a, a great tradition of, of public higher education. I mean, the University of North Carolina is a first-ranked school. North Carolina State mm -hmm. gets no, nowhere near the credit it deserves. East Car but am I right in saying no state is more aggressively gone after public higher ed than they have in North Carolina over the last 15 years? I, I, I mean, in you know, you would have thought that 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 people would have pushed back more on this. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it's it's kind of disappointing. I think since the 2010 Republican wave election and the Republicans in the legislature who have been able to dominate the uh, state system for governance of higher ed here in North Carolina, 
Republicans in the state legislature want to reshape North Carolina into their vision and into their mold. And they saw the UNC as the prime opportunity to start to reshape that dynamic. They've gone through a couple of different leaders, but they now have basically one of their own in control of the university system. And I think they are trying to bend the university system to their will and to their vision of how they want this state to be seen. Yeah, I remember Jesse Helms used to call University of North Carolina the University of Communists and Negroes. I mean, that was, that was working years. I mean, they've, they've, been, they've, they've been hating Chapel Hill for, for a long time. This is nothing new. Albert? Well, I, Michael, I want to thank you. Just, just one final thing, going back to the, the, the conversation you and James had about the Republican candidate, Ted Budd. He's a gun store owner. He voted against that modest gun bill. He voted against the infrastructure bill. And what's interesting is that both of the Republican, conservative Republican senators, Tom Tillis and Richard Burr, voted for those measures. Uh, He really is more in the Trump, Jesse Helms mold. He is very much. And I think we're going to continue to see that dynamic, particularly if he wins the cuts between Tom Tillis, who is very much a kind of Main Street business oriented kind of Republican and Ted Budd will pose a very interesting dynamic. But that has been the case here in North Carolina. I mean, we had John Edwards and Jesse Helms at the same time. So North Carolina's bifurcated kind of bipolar politics is well in play yet again here in 2022. (laughs) Well, I would think a more interesting dynamic, my son aside, would be Sherry Beasley and Tom Tillis. Uh, They would disagree, but they would both be civil to one another. And I think they'd bring more intellectual firepower to the United States Senate. I think it's going to be a fascinating race to watch. And the thing that has really surprised me is the lack of money that has been pumped into this state. I mean, yes, I know national Democrats are concerned about putting in resources that are valuably used in states like Georgia and Pennsylvania. Uh, In 2020, it was a nearly $300 million U.S. Senate race, but it has been the quietest competitive race, I think, in the state. Maybe Florida is the other quiet sleeper but North Carolina can't be, you know, can't be just put aside and said, you know, nothing's going to happen because it will be close yet again. But you wrote you wrote a week ago that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are putting a huge amount of money in there. And the question is, will Chuck Schumer and the Democrats match it? Yeah, exactly. And I think that we're starting to see that money kind of start to move in. A couple million dollars are starting to move in. We're not going to hit 300 million for this contest. But in normal years, it's usually between 75 to 100 million dollars. I doubt we may get to that level, but it'll just have to wait to be seen if they decide to make the investment. James, you have a final question? Uh no, really, I just really thank the prof for doing this, and I hope we can have you back on because I was, you know, was I thought our, our listeners got a very astute analysis and a, and a good idea of what's going on in the old North State, as you call it. And congratulations on all your scholarship, and we look forward to having you on the show again and hearing what you have to say. It's Michael yes, Bitzer it's- of Old North State Politics, Catawba College, and all eyes on November the eighth will be on Cabarrus County. Thank you, Michael. I, I, I agree. The Democrats are reluctant, but they're going to put the money that they have to in. Remember, North Carolina is a very expensive state. It is. Yeah, we got ten we got media, a lot markets, of media markets. So, and, yeah, 
yeah, it's it, it it's not a cheap place, but I I, th- I think the National Democrats are going to come in that pretty strong later on. But I hope I'm right. But thank you, sir. You're a great guest. Appreciate it. My pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now for the listener questions. I'll tell you, we've been doing this show for uh, a couple years. This week, I think, is the, is the best group of listener questions, and they're always good, and they're from all over the globe. And we're going to start, James, with Carl, who is from, I hope I get this right, Nakhon C. Thamara, Thailand. And Carl from Thailand asks, would a full federal pardon for Trump issued by Biden makes sense if Trump comes completely clean about the stolen secret documents, it admits why he took them and if he shared them with anybody. You know, first of all, I've been in Thailand a couple of times, went to Phuket and I've been to Bangkok. And oh. It is a stunning country. It is a stunning culture, stunning cuisine. Uh, the Italy of Asia. It's a black, <laughs> it, Thailand is like a great, a, a great place. It, 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 you know, Al, his question is something that I have, I think I've said on this show a couple of times, that my prediction is that in the course of this year, Trump's lawyers will try to negotiate with the White House to say that he has specifically asked for pardon and admits guilt. I think, and I, I, I believe me, no one, I don't take a backseat to anybody in my contempt for Donald Trump, but at that point, it might be something for President Biden to consider. Now, the problem they have is the the Fulton County DA. And the only way that that deal would work is the president would have to intercede and ask the Fulton County DA to suspend her prosecution of Trump, and only Trump. I I don't know how how that pans out. There's also a... Just as the show started, uh, somebody pointed out to me that New York AG just filed a 200-page lawsuit against Trump and all of and his whole family, and so he's 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 got legal stuff coming at him from from everywhere you can imagine. But it might be prudent if he were to ask humbly ask President Biden and humbly admit guilt. It might be prudent to just break him in civil court. I agree with you, James, but Carl, it has to be more than Mar-a-Lago. It also has to be, you know, his attempt to stage a coup, uh, an election, electoral right, coup. Right, right. Uh, but if, if you, I mean, there's so many crimes he committed. If you put them all together, I think James is right. He admits his guilt. He says he's not going to run again. Um, I think, uh, I think it, then there's a case for a pardon. It, 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 I just want to make one more point on this. If people say, well... You know, he's the former president, you know, maybe like the judge or maybe it's a, the, the number one principle of the United States is no person is above the law. Right. And I, I just don't get and, and what is, you know, what's the consequences if you indict him? You're just going to be division. What's the consequences of letting a career criminal commit open and flagrant crimes right in front of the country and doing nothing about it. So if I'm 16, 17-year-old urban kid and the president doesn't follow the law, why the hell should I follow the law? James, I, mean, it, this, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I would, they, right. 
all of our listeners ought to read Merrick Garland's speech a couple of days ago uh, uh, to those new citizens about the importance of the rule of law, and it applies to everybody, and, no matter how I, I low you, or how high you rank. I, I, this I'm confident in. He's going to be indicted, yeah. and it's not going to be that long from now. James, our next question is from Salt Lake City, Utah, from Sam Tolls, who is the nephew of the former Washington Post cartoonist Tom Tolls. Oh, wow. I love Tom Tolls, uh, and yeah. i got to tell you, Sam, you tell your Uncle Tom he is missed. Sam says, I think of my family's own move from New York City to Salt Lake and all the proud Democrats I personally know in the last two years have left liberal bastions like Los Angeles, New York for red states. Have pollsters factored in this great migration into their 2022 calculus? Could this yield an unexpected impact? Sam, I, I don't think so. Um, most of the people I know who've left New York have moved to Vermont, uh, and I don't think it's going to change the politics in Vermont much. Uh, and I don't know, out in Utah, probably not. But Evan McMullen has really given uh, that right-wing Senator Mike Lee a tussle. So maybe some newcomers will make a difference there. And in some states, I mean, we talked to Michael Bitzer early. North Carolina, if you look at North Carolina, there's a huge divide, not just black, white, educated, non-educated, between people who've moved to the state in the last five or ten years versus people who haven't, who have li lived there much longer. And the newcomers tend to vote more Democratic. What do you think, James? Yeah, I, I don't know how many. I mean, obviously, you meet people, and I, 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 I'm kind of with you. I don't, I don't know if that effect is going to be that big. I'll say this. Salt Lake City is one of my favorite cities, and, and people have this, oh, man, it's Utah. It's, but let me tell you, first of all, it's a very democratic city. I think they had a, a gay democratic mayor, if I, if I recall right. I'm, and a congressman but, before last right, time. Right. And... Uh, uh, who was his name? Owens was a good friend of mine. He was a big Middle East peace guy. He was a Democratic congressman. They died some, some years ago. But that city really works well. The University of Utah is there. Wayne Owens, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And the University of Utah is there. They got great restaurants. It, it's it's pretty open place. And, you know, those, that Park City, the mountains are like a half hour away. So if anybody think about a vacation, I, I'm very high on Utah as a destination, and I'm very high on Salt Lake. is is an interesting, vibrant. They're reading the local magazine. They have all kind of micro breweries there. That, you know, it's very big into that. It's not what you think at it's all. It's not. At it's all. not. <clears throat> we ski in Colorado, but I much prefer flying into that Salt Lake City airport than the Denver airport. Uh, well, yeah, but if, when you're at the Salt Lake City airport, you're half hour. Yeah. When you're at the Denver airport, you still got a long way to go to get to Vail Aspen. Yeah. I mean, that, that stuff is really accessible. It's nice. It I'm not is. getting anything against Colorado. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to be, <laughs> my friends in Colorado call yeah, me. Yeah, and I don't want to. And, and I still love Vail. I want to make that perfectly yeah, I, I, clear. I, I, I love all the places. <laughs> I'm just telling you, Salt Lake City is, is often overlooked as a, is, is a really cool destination. And my good, good pal, airport, by the way, and my a really good, good airport. My good pal, Fred Kemp, who's the head of the Atlantic Council, is a big Ute. He's a Utah, University of Utah graduate, and uh, says it's a terrific so school. I, I, I can't let this go without the, the Utah jazz, which I used to go to, <laughs> New Orleans jazz. And, and it doesn't make—and I asked somebody pretty knowledgeable and said the owner thought it too much money to change the logo so he wouldn't change. So we have—it's it's almost become, well, I'm fine with it. Not, it's so out of kilter that— that, that jazz and Utah don't seem to go together, but so what? That's what it is. And I think you're right, great. James, but it's not as out of sync as it was 20 years ago. 
Right. And right. Salt Lake City has changed. Yeah, it's, a, it's a vibrant place. Yeah. 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 Um, now, now that we've been in Salt Lake and Thailand, we're going to go home to Washington D.C. from Greg, who says that who knows Democrats have scored big wins uh, this fall in Kansas and Alaska. Mississippi has also seen some relatively close elections. The Jackson Water Crisis and Brett Favre welfare scandal are indictments of Republicans. There, do any of these states have a chance to go more blue? Which state could be the most competitive for Democrats? But. If Tate Reeves gets the Republican nomination, which is not a given, he will get beat by Brandon Prescott, a Democrat. And and Brandon is, is not going to if if he doesn't win, he's he's going to be close. I I think he's got a a, a really good shot. Uh, the the Brett Favre thing, you always hate to get too far out there based on news reports. But if this thing is remotely true, it just stinks to high heaven. Oh. I mean, I think it's five million dollars, James, for four kids to, to build a volleyball uh. arena at the University of Southern Mississippi, and apparently the the former governor. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna say if if this is based in fact, I have no reason to say that it's not. But I'm certainly not gonna go based on a news story, say something. This this thing smells to high heaven. And the Jackson water crisis, I mean, Jackson is a perfect example of a city that has just been abandoned by affluent people and it's just left to steal on its own. And it, it it's horrible that you got people that can't, they have drinking water and they're skimming money from poor people. To uh, it's, 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 it, it's not good. And I think Brandon's got a real shot their governor's race is in 2023. Well, boy, that would that yeah. would be something. That would be something. I, you know, Mississippi used to have some uh, really great <clears throat> great public service uh, servants. Bill Winter, William uh, Winter, great example. Yeah, and actually, uh, a Republic, late Republican Senator Thad Cochran uh, was yeah. awful. Haley was good. not a bad governor at all. Hale, Haley was not a bad governor. And, and, and compared know. to Phil Griffin or, or oh. Tate Reeves, jeez. No, absolutely. Uh, James, this is Mike in Acton, Massachusetts. <clears throat> He's a history teacher teaching a current events class and reviewing where news comes from. He's curious, where do you guys get your news from and your favorite sources? What are your thoughts on what counts as news today and how is it covered and how should teachers approach presenting news, politics, and school? First I'm of all- I'm gonna refer to you on that. Well, you know. no, we're gonna come to you too on this. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be a little long-winded, but yeah, I, I've changed a lot. I watch a lot less television than I used to. I used to turn on the television set four or five hours a day. I, of course, watch the News Hour, my wife's show. I think it's the best show on television. About once a week, I try to tune on. I try to tune into Fox News to see what their, uh, you know, what the what the line is. And if there's a big story during the beginning of the of the COVID crisis, I watched Sanjay Gupta on CNN. And if it's a big story, I'll try to tune into uh, Andrea Mitchell. But mainly, I read. I start with the Washington Post, the New York Times, which I still think are great papers. Uh, I uh, always read the Atlantic. What Jeff Goldberg has done with the Atlantic is just incredible. Uh, every day, there's some fascinating stories. New Yorker, if Jane Mayer, or Evan Osnos is writing, and then James, I look at a lot of of newsletters. Not a lot. I look at you know a handful of newsletters every day because they're so good. Jim Fallows, uh, Breaking News, and Heather Cox Richardson, 
and and stat that Rick Burke has put together this great medical um, uh, news site. I, I, you know, I may look and see if there's one story that interests me. And there usually is, or the Chronicle of Higher Education, and finally Judd Ligham's Popular Information. I also would tell uh, uh, Professor Mike that um, habits are changing, and the the new media, the social media. Uh, in some ways can be more influ influential than what I'm reading. I, I mean, I obviously have but, but my reading habits align pretty much with you, right? I, I, like, like you, I don't watch a whole lot of cable television. Uh, I would definitely add New York Magazine to, uh, I, well, first of all, I think John Chait is the best commentator that there is. And uh, Ed Kilgore, and they have some interesting, I, I find they have some interesting articles, particularly interesting political articles from time to time. I tell you, for just a site to go and see what's going on in the world, Drudge is pretty good. Mm -hmm. And you can click on to anything. And, you, you know, I mean, he's got links to, to God knows where. So, I mean, if there's one place that I was just going to navigate around, and, you know, it, he got the reputation for being right-leaning, I guess it, that's what his politics are, but his site uh, carries most big stories and carry a lot of, like, fun stories, but I, I, I pay, pay attention to that. Um, you know, obviously, the, the Cook Report, anything that they say, I, I, I hang on every word. Uh, I like some of the you know, I like the five thirty. I like the, some of the analysis that that comes out. I mean, yeah, I look person, at five thirty eight, uh, and I look at anything that Dave Wasserman, the Cook Report, does. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, in uh, that guy Nate Cohn, I find him to be you know insightful, sometimes provocative, sometimes you know I don't agree with him on everything, but I find him to be uh, pretty pretty damn insightful. Um, Okay, well, you, 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 you mentioned your favorite uh, Jonathan Chait. I, I mentioned The Atlantic. I'll tell you, for my money, the best political writer in America may be Ron Brownstein. Brownstein, for sure. And, uh, I, I, with Tom Etzel uh, right up there in a different vein. So, yeah, uh, he's a little different. I mean, is. Chait is not specialty, is not politics per se, but he, 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 I think he has some terrific insights on mm -hmm. things. James, we started in Thailand. Now let's go to Munich, Germany. Ooh, wow. Philip. By the way, I mentioned Munich, Germany. I have wa watched two of that three-part Ken Burns, Lynn Novick series on the Holocaust and Jews in America. And I got to tell you, it's fascinating. It really is. It's horrible, uh, but it is just great history. We thought we knew most of it. Uh, in many ways, it's worse than we thought. Uh, and anyone who hadn't watched it, I would advise them to to take a look. Munich, uh, Munich's Philip asked, do you think Democrats should hope that Donald Trump runs again in 2024? I know you think he's not going to or won't be the nominee, but should they hope he does because they'd stand a better chance of beating him than a DeSantis or a Haley or a Rubio? All right. Well, first of all, you talk about cities with great airports. Munich can get, get right up there with, with any of them. Um, look, I don't know. We don't have any say-so and everything else. But I hope that he runs. And, and let me tell you, what, some of the commentary is he might not. And, you know, money is everything to Trump. And if, if he's not an announced candidate, he can pay all of these legal fees out of that account. Once he becomes a candidate, I'm told by, and by people I've read this seem to be knowledgeable about it, he's cut off that access. That's going to be a very expensive 
undertaking for him to run for president. I'm not saying that, that he won't. And I don't really have any any fear if he does because he's in so much legal jeopardy now. I I, I, I just don't see how he can do it. But in I think our, our listener is right. Be careful what you wish for because suppose he was actually competent. I mean, I mean if you think of one of the – um, one of the things I want to read, and some good researcher, journalist could do this, all of the shit that Trump tried to do, all right, that he wanted to, that never got done. How many crimes he wanted to commit? I mean, buying Greenland and, and every cockatoo and nuking hurricanes and every Cloroxing pulmonary issues. I mean, just think of all the dumb shit. Shooting, shooting immigrants coming across the border, yeah, yeah, putting alligators in the, in, the, uh, in the river. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you just, I, I just somebody has got to do that. And the, the, it, what it gives you pause is the, the kind of universally despicable character is the person that knew who Trump was, that works in administration and says, yeah, but it— it would have been worse if I wouldn't have been there. I'm beginning to wonder maybe these people have a point. Maybe they have a point. Maybe maybe it was better off that 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 they would have had to at least take the papers off of his desk. I, I have no idea. Now the you know, the new thing is they're all coming after Jeffrey Berman, who wrote, I think, one of the most damaging books about Bill Barr and the Trump administration. Why are they coming after imagine? Jeffrey Berman, James? Because he didn't say it when our friend yeah. Andrew Weissman said, well, why, now you're telling us. Why didn't you tell us then? And that's a legitimate thing, but shit, he's telling us now. Better to know now than never. Would have been I, better to know when it was going on, I agree, but... I agree on both counts, and that's true of some of the books that are coming out, too. I'll tell you what may be the hottest one. I haven't read it yet, but the New York Times' Peter Baker and his wife, Susan Glasser uh, of The New Yorker, have, a, I guess, a 650-page book coming out uh, on the Trump uh, years. And what I've read so far, it is going to meet the definition of a bombshell. Well, I mean, they are, they're very, very talented. I mean, I've been mean, knowing Peter Baker forever, I don't know. You know, and, and, and he and his wife, are, they're, they're a very talented team. And, and they're hardly big Democrats. They wrote a biography of Jim Baker. I mean, a pretty down the middle kind of journalist. And if they write something, you know, it's going to be thoroughly sourced and be right. well done. Look forward to it. And, and, and you know, in our favorite topic, I mean, they went through McConnell's agony after January 6th. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you know, we probably agree on what he should have done. We probably will never agree on what would have happened and we can't prove it one way or the other. Mm. Our final question is from Kathleen in Tucson, Arizona, who asks you, do you find any real reason for polit political debates between candidates? It seems like candidates don't answer the questions asked. They just spat out whatever message they want to get out. You know, it's a it's a it's a very it's a very good and in, in, in many ways kind of deep question because it was just taken that every campaign you would have three debates, all right? And I bet somebody would make an issue out of it. And of course the, the most creative pre debate spin ever has come from that all time great Herschel Walker who says, I'm just not gonna win. I'm not that smart. I mean, I've seen people like lower expectations. But I've never seen a guy before debate say, Well, I'm just not as smart as he is. So I'm not well, gonna give do him that. credit for honesty, James. <laughs> you do. 
You do. I got. I mean, maybe Herschel is at least smart enough to know how stupid he is. But that I got to tell you, that is a a revolutionary idea. And of course, the Republicans said they don't debate. Who cares? They don't talk to the press. They don't go. They don't do interviews. Most of them don't even have a public schedule. I, I mean, it's just been a sea change in in the way that Republicans go about elections. That it's all about their base all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. I think debates have been debased. I think we both agree that the uh, Presidential Debate Commission uh, really has has uh, has recently, I don't know, disgraced itself, but it doesn't yeah. uh, doesn't add any real value. You know, I, I directed one debate. It was a Republican primary debate in New Hampshire in 2011. We did it with the Washington Post. We, one of the smart things that we did, uh, which, which rarely, if ever, been replicated, we had the candidates ask each other, ask one of the other uh, candidates a question. And some of them were really quite banal. But it's really not a bad idea to have the candidates ask. It says something about the question they a- ask and says something about the answers that they give. But I think uh, the import of political debates for a lot of reasons, including those you just cited, James, uh, I think are uh, on a on a inexorable downhill slide. Yeah, they're going to have to think. I mean, the Presidential Commission on Debates is an idea whose probably time has come and gone. But, you know, I tell you where debates are, I think, are even more valuable is during the primaries. Yeah. You know, and it's hard when you have multi-candidate. Remember, they had the kids' table and all of this kind of stuff to get everybody on, on the stage with a lot of candidates. They're hard to pull off, but they're very valuable in primaries, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Listen, I have to tell you, I read about one quarter of the questions that came in uh, this week, and ninety um, percent of the ones we couldn't get to, James, were—I mean, they were A questions. And so, please keep them coming. We love to get those questions, and we love to hear from Thailand and Munich, Germany, uh, as well as Arizona and elsewhere. So, please yeah, yeah. keep writing in with those questions. Even Washington D.C. Yeah, right, right. Now for the outrage of the week. Um, The House Republican leadership is whipping its members to vote against the Electoral College reform measure sponsored by Republican Liz Cheney and Democrat Zoe Lofgren and a bipartisan group of senators. Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise charged this runs counter to efforts to assure the integrity of elections. That's a lie. Do you believe that Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise care about the integrity of elections? The Cheney-Lofgren bill is a response to the attempt by Trump with his fellow traveler Quislings to stage a political coup and overturn the 2020 presidential elections. They didn't succeed, but they laid a roadmap for overturning democracy in subsequent elections. There are two explanations for the House Republicans. They are cowards afraid to incur the venom of Trump who desperate to avoid the loser label, which he has so richly earned, delusionally insist he still won the last election, and or they know cheating is the best way to win elections. James, this goes to the core of democracy. It, it, you gotta, this is just something I'm, I'm, it provokes a, a larger conversation. These Republicans are doing what their voters demand that they do. do, do you, but understand that the Republican Party, the people who vote, are, in my opinion, 
are off their rocker, but it's a substantial majority of that party. And see what happened to Liz Cheney. See, see, read the article about how Mitch McConnell, right after January 6th, was furious when he didn't impeach it. And when he went to his caucus, he found out he didn't have anything there. And, and that caucus knows if they don't hew the line, if they make some kind of a deal with Nancy Pelosi and to pass something that enhances voting, they can't be for that. They'll lose primaries. How do you think you get Blake Masters and Doug Mastriano and Dr. Oz and J.D. Vance and Herschel Walker? Uh, I mean, come on. We know why. Because they have really, really crazy, stupid people that vote in their primaries. And it's more. It's not all careful here. OK, but it is a substantial majority of the Republican Party that demands this. And all that McCarthy and Scalise are doing is being, well, good small D Democrats. They're doing what their party wants them to do. And that the problem with the Republican Party, of course they have feckless, weak, spineless leadership, but that's because that's what Republican voters want. And until these voters die off or something, we're just stuck with them. And the Republican Party is stuck with them. And there's no courageous, you know, intelligent, well-meaning conservative that's going to come up and save him. It ain't going to happen. See, see what happened in happening in Maryland where I'm going tomorrow. It, it, it ain't coming back. Larry Hogan is not the face of the, of the Maryland Republican Party, and we got to understand that. Their voters are out of their minds. Also in Massachusetts, uh, Charlie Baker's uh, uh, a Trumper. Uh, is, uh, is Right. Running right. to succeed, Charlie right. Baker. Right. He's going to get swamped. Baker and Hogan were very popular, you know, in, in that kind of model of, you know, popular Republican governors in a blue state and everything. I don't give a shit. That is the problem. The problem is the less dramatics problem of the Georgia prisons. They have a low-quality inmate. <laughs> That's their problem. Yep. And I, I, that, that analysis, I am... I got both of my feet planted in concrete. It ain't, it ain't a leadership. <laughs> it, it's it's the voter that is getting ex- the Republican voter is getting exactly what they want. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics Roar Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper, Blinkist, and ExpressVPN in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.